Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. I'm pleased to share a panel discussion from the 2022 CMO Summit on the topic of what CMOs must know about how patient engagement supports the entire organization. For more information about the CMO Summit, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cmosummit360.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Great, so as my panelists come up, since we only have 30 minutes, I'm gonna get started. I'm Jody Gillen. I currently head uh, patient medical and corporate affairs at Peptologics. It's a phase one biotech with 30 people and we focus on peptide therapeutics. So I'm not a CMO. I've been leading patient engagement or a chief patient officer at various companies, both big and small, for two and a half decades now. When the conference forum reached out to me and asked me to be part of a panel on what CMOs need to know about patient engagement, I said absolutely for two reasons. The first being I think that most organizations hire my role way too late. I'm currently in phase one. I've never been in a company this early, but there are so many benefits to it. And the other reason is that other than convince you all that you should hire my role as early as possible, I thought, what about the impact if CMOs get more involved in patient engagement and if they do it correctly or, or beneficially um, and impactfully? And I thought about the role on everyone's organization and then on patients themselves. So very thrilled to be here with this esteemed panel today. And what I would ask is we only have 29 minutes left. So don't wait for questions at the end. Come up anytime with questions because I'd rather get to yours than focus on mine. So I'm actually going to start off. I'm going to ask each of the panelists to introduce themselves. And then actually, even though we didn't plan for this for efficiency, I'm going to throw out the first question to all three of you while you do your introductions. And the first question is going to be, what do you see as the benefits, other than the obvious, that patient engagement is the right thing to do? What have been the benefits, and especially unexpected benefits, of patient engagement? So we'll start with you, Ralph. So first, let me thank, thank you, Jody. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm a patient. I've sat here all day, and I've heard you talk about patients and the importance of patients, and I'm thrilled that we could share some true patient insights. At the end of the day, that's why we're all here. That's why you work so hard at your companies. And we know that's the why you got involved. So I'm a patient. Uh, I was raised actually in a medical family. My dad was a medical school professor. I grew up in a lab. And then I'm embarrassed to say I played 10 years in the NFL, which was very hard for my father to understand. Uh, but he got over it. When I got sick, I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease when I was in my second season as the place kicker for the San Diego Chargers. Uh, played sick for a year and a half. There's only one kicker. You're either the starting kicker or you're unemployed. And back when I was playing, we had a great team. And the kicker got to kick a lot. And it was my hometown. And it was hard to, to leave. I was forced uh, to uh, leave halfway through my third season. Needed surgery. Ended up with an ostomy bag for four years. Um, it's hard at 24 years of age. But sort of remarkably, my body healed, and I returned to play in the NFL for seven more years, four of those wearing a bag. Um, changed my life dramatically. What I didn't know was that I ended up getting hepatitis C from the blood transfusions. I needed 80 units of blood. I found that out about 15 years later when we were finishing our family of four kids, and ultimately went on three clinical trials. A very difficult side effects. This is the early interferon-based uh, ribavirin, uh, antiviral studies that uh, 
Roche, uh, Amgen, and, and Shering Plow did before science moved to Gilead's all oral, no side effect drug, which is amazing. So I'm here as the most grateful patient you will ever meet and would love to share insights about how to activate us. We are willing participants. We would love to be involved. We have an extraordinary opportunity right now with COVID, what it has done to disrupt healthcare and re-examine the reasons we do things. That opportunity has uh, provided us as patients the chance to come alongside of all of you and the benefits are numerous. Not only reactivating the why you do it, when you engage us early, you learn what's important to us. We can help you design endpoints that are meaningful to us. We can engage early on and help you develop a patient engagement plan where you really understand what patients need and want. I think the earlier you do that, to answer your question specifically, is you avoid going down wrong rabbit holes. We think you can get to enrollment quicker, submission quicker. The FDA is asking for patient feedback. Patient report outcomes are becoming increasingly important, and we have a strong desire to do that. So long-winded answer, but again, thank you very much for allowing me to be here. That's an easy act to follow. Barry, would you like to go next? <laughs> okay, uh, I'm Roger Waltzman. I'm a medical oncologist. Uh, I spent about a decade in academia as a clinician and clinical researcher, and um, have now been in industry for about 15 years, nine of them at Novartis and six in biotech as a chief medical officer. Um, I, I don't have that extravagant a background. I'll just go right to your question, Jody. I, um, I think we can summarize the, the potential benefits of including patient input early on briefly by saying your results will be more practical and, and useful. Um, your ability to execute the trial at sites is likely to be more expedient. Um, and ultimately, you will be able to get data in front of a myriad of audiences that will be more impressive to them because they understand that the end user has been involved in, in the process. So the credibility is greater. And bottom line, if all of that leads to enrolling faster and getting practical endpoints that everyone accepts, including regulatory authorities, of course, they have to be validated and credible, then that's a win-win for the company as well. Thanks, Roger. Uh, so hello, everyone. I'm Barry Tico. I am chief medical officer at Stoke Therapeutics. My background, I am a pediatric cardiologist by training, have a PhD in biochemistry, was on staff here at Mass General Hospital at Harvard Medical School, then switched over to industry, and I've been making new medicines for over 20 years now. I was at Biogen for quite a long time, working in neurology and cardiovascular and uh, immunology programs, then was at Pfizer, uh, followed by Moderna, and then uh, joined Stoke now for four and a half years ago. And at Stoke, we are an RNA medicines company. We use antisense oligonucleotides to modulate splicing of RNA in the cell to increase protein levels in the cell. So that's uh, different from what usually is heard from antisense oligonucleotides, which are typically used to knock down or remove protein. We are adding or, or augmenting protein levels inside a cell and focused especially on diseases where there's only half the amount of a certain protein present that's causing a disease and we can boost the levels back up to normal. The example of that is Dravet syndrome, which is an intractable form of epilepsy 
uh, and a horrible disease, uh, causes 20% mortality before teenage years and uh, essentially uh, arrests development at about two years of age. And it's due to a sodium channel subunit deficiency, which we can use our oligonucleotides to boost that back up to normal. And so we're in phase two right now with that. Um, and we've gotten there very much to, because of our patient interactions. We have the benefit of, in both the US and in Europe, having very strong patient advocates for Dravet syndrome. And they're, we've used them really for three, three main things. One is to help with protocols and study design. As, as Roger mentioned, it was tremendously helpful. Secondly, uh, for helping to engage people in the company and really help them understand the mission of the company and help them be motivated to do what they're doing. And that's a tremendous help. We've had families come into our company almost since the very beginning to uh, tell us about Dravet syndrome and to introduce us to their, to their children and give really a purpose to the, the work of the researchers in the company. And then the other reason is because it's being mandated now. Uh, you know, Rolf and Roger mentioned that the FDA is requiring it. Well, we just had the experience uh, just a few weeks ago from our trial in the UK, where now the, the, the rule is that there has to be a patient who reviews the informed consent form and provides comments, and those have to be shown to the MHRA and to the Ethics Committee that that review was done. And if we hadn't had engagement with the UK Dravet Syndrome Foundation beforehand, we would have been scrambling to try to find someone to review this. But luckily we had our, we had our affiliations already set up and uh, they were happy to review our documents. They'd reviewed our protocol. We, have, we had patient, patient advocates review our protocols from the very beginning. So they they very quickly provided comments and we had no delay because of this review. But this is a mandated review now. They're, they are going to require that a patient or patient advocacy group review materials used for clinical trials. Uh, so it's no longer a nice to have, it's a must have. Th that's also true in, in the US with certain funding sources. Certain public funding sources now require patient review of the materials, including the informed consent and other aspects of the protocol, which is an appropriate incentive, I think. Barry, I'm glad that you mentioned the internal motivation, because even if I run one patient event a year, my colleagues in the lab who are there nights and weekends say it carries them through an entire year. Uh, so a question for Rolf, um, what are the barriers to engaging patients? And then how do you involve all types of patients? Because you have those that are advocates and super aware and those that might not even be on a computer accessing trials. Yeah, it's a great question. I think there are numerous barriers and it starts with what you call them, clinical trials. I think at the end of the day, a lot of patients still consider that themselves to be sort of guinea pigs that you're throwing a dart at an experiment and, and it may or may not work where they really need to understand that they are getting the latest clinical therapy, the most advanced research out there. So it starts with that. Um, they have no idea how to find sites, so we need to engage patients much earlier in that. We have to demystify a trial. I think um, we have to unburden the trials for patients. So what does that mean? Um, 
it's a very site specific. We've heard all day, we, the last session, couple of sessions goes about decentralizing trial. That's a really important first step. It needs to include what's important to patients and why they will or will not go on a trial. I don't think there's a one size fits all here. I think depending on the disease state, um, we can learn from the patients why they will or will not. It means we have to listen. Um, I'll, talk, I'll talk about inflammatory bowel disease. So if there's an IBD study, and there are lots of drugs coming out for that. It's awesome to see the science. If you think about someone that has Crohn's disease or colitis, they have to know where every bathroom is. They literally, when they walk into a restaurant, the first thing they want to do is they want to know where the restroom is. So if the site requires a visit, eight visits, let's say, for infusions over a couple of month period, and the patient lives further than an hour away, he likely, she likely will not go on trial because she may need to use the bathroom twice between here and there. And if there's traffic, she doesn't know where it is. She just goes, I'm not going to do it. So if you can listen to that patient and say, all right, well, why do they really need to go in eight times? What if we sent a nurse and they did six of the infusions at the house and twice they had to go in for a colonoscopy or whatever the endpoint is that you're looking for? The patients who are desperate for new therapies, my guess I would speak very confidently that they would sign up for a trial like that. But you wouldn't know that was an issue until, uh, an issue until you actually asked them. So there, there are barriers like that. And, and then if you think about another issue that was brought up a lot here was the lack of diversity in a trial. If, if you think about si trials are centered around typically academic institutions, so you get the same socioeconomic level. When you can decentralize trials, communicate differently, you get obviously a very diverse group of of patients. Um, so those are just a couple uh, of barriers that I think are significant. Um, the, the other one is uh, the, the trust, right? The tr trust has to be built with patients. Sadly to me, because I'm, a, again, the most grateful patient you'll meet, is I understand and so appreciate the, the science that has progressed therapies. I mean, I'm cured of hep C before the amazing drugs that Gilead produced. We trust, there, I just read a survey this morning, 71% of us trust our physician. It used to be 30% of us trusted uh, pharma companies that went up to 60% with COVID and it's now back hovering around 50%, 50 but we trust our HCP. So if our, if our HCP can tell us this is worthwhile to go on this trial, that's a huge bonus for us. If they can hear from other patients, that's a bonus. If we get treated not like a subject or a number, but engaged as a partner in this process, even if the trial fails, we understand that's the way science advances. So if you can engage us like partners, listen to us, and then feedback the results. This is another big piece that is forgotten. We wanna know what happened. Did our study advance, even if it failed, but let us know. So. There are a bunch, but those are a couple that I think are pretty big barriers. Maybe I can ask Rob a question because this is one of the barriers. I'm not sure it's a barrier, but the hesitation that we had in in working with patients is overpromising or or setting expectations that you know th this is going to be a cure for your child or for your cancer or or for whatever. And how do we balance that? Because on the one hand, we're obviously working on something that we believe is going to work, and we have scientific data to support that. On the other hand, 
We also know that nine times out of 10, even when a drug gets into clinical trials, nine times out of 10, it's gonna fail and not be available. So how do we, how do we temper that? How do we approach a family and say, or, or a patient and say, we have something that might treat you. We wanna to talk to you about it. We wanna learn from you. We want you to, to be engaged with us, but not set the expectations so high that you think, this is it, I'm, I'm gonna be cured. So it's a great question. Uh, and uh, since you asked me, I'll, I'll give the first response. A lot was talked about in the different sessions today about being authentic. You talked in terms of be authentic with the FDA so you don't get caught telling a half-truth. I would suggest the same with patients. If you're absolutely authentic with a patient and explain where they are, the patients aren't stupid. We really aren't. And here's what's happening. I talked earlier about this transition that's happening because of COVID. When we first get diagnosed, they've done studies, 87% of patients, the first minute they get home from the diagnosis, they go on the computer and they, they doctor Google what their illness is. The second thing they do is they look for social groups that have their disease and they engage. Facebook groups, online chats, blogs, and they learn from influencers what's going on out there. And those influencers have influence for a reason. And there's this movement towards interest and concern and, and desire to be involved in, in their disease, in our disease. And so when you're transparent and authentic, you don't just tell that to your patient. That patient shares it with the social network that, that we're all part of. We understand the risk, especially as we educate patients about what a trial really is. It's advancing science. It's not a, an experiment with a dart thrown at a... At a it's truly what science is leading to. And I, and I think we're willing to take that risk, especially for those of us that have had little hope of, of any other outcome. And particularly in the rare and orphan disease, which is where so much of, of our emphasis is now moving, people wanna know that there's an option and they're willing to take that risk. Yeah, I, I was, uh, obviously we should find advocates with a lot of TikTok followers. Um, I, I think the, the credibility that you're pointing to, Rolf, is, is a little bit outside our frame as the sponsor, though, because we really depend on the principal investigator and the treating investigator to be that voice of credibility for his or her patients. What we can do is find those people who believe in our research and who um, genuinely want to be involved in this project. This is not trial number nine for them that is concomitantly open. Uh, but this is the trial or th one of the two trials that they think is really most suited for the population of patients whom they care for. It's a surrogate of, for patient interest and patient credibility, but, but I think it's the one that we have the most influence on. And the other point that I was going to make about patient convenience, because I think in oncology we are woefully guilty of um, making some trials excruciatingly challenging for patients. And oftentimes our products start, or almost always, our products start in, in late stage. They've exhausted standard of care. They are truly desperate. Um, this is the only option available, perhaps, or this and some other trial, that is. And yet we have pharmacokinetic samples drawn at nine different time points leading up to 12 hours after infusion and, and, and a schedule that gets more complicated from there. We should really pressure check with our pharmacokinetic colleagues. How much do you need to know right now? Can, you, can we learn this degree of data a little bit later? Or do we need to know this on every single patient? 
or could we learn part of this in phase 1B instead of all of it in phase 1A? And if we are gonna ask people to be in the clinic for that many hours, then let's pay for their transportation and pay for them to have an overnight in a hotel and make sure it's acceptable to the regulatory authorities, to their IRB, and that we're not coercing them to be on the trial. But let's at least defray some of the massive inconvenience and cost that is involved in their being willing to participate in the trial. Let me just add on to that. I think it starts with listening to the patients. What would they be willing to do? And what you would find out is they would be willing to do a lot. And the earlier you find that out, the better. And you even think in this biotech, early biotech, you, you know, you're, you're, you're not even in phase two, you're early on. The insights you can get from a patient do all of what you're talking about. They activate this sort of culture in it, but they do so much more. But you don't know how to start, and, and you got to start. It, it's time to do it. There's too much opportunity. And the opportunity cost of not doing it is extraordinary, I believe. One practical tip about false hope is that the patient groups get it. They're just so grateful that companies are looking at their disease area and they know that most will fail. And something that I've done that's been incredibly beneficial, especially early in development, is sign mutual NDAs with my patient groups and just bring them completely under the tent and be able to partner more uh, thoroughly with them. I, that is so, so true. I I'm, I'm, don't mean to dominate. That is so true. And the advocate has changed. You know, the, the person that I think scared farmer for a long time were these outspoken advocates that are going to be looking over your shoulder. That's not who we are. We are, we are grateful that somebody is spending time to research our disease and we want to help. And we think we, we can bring a, a huge amount of resource and knowledge there that is invaluable to an organization. So just a reminder, I'm going to keep going. So if you have questions, we have eight minutes. Yes. <laughs> um, Question really for Rolf. I'm, I'm just thinking about the patient communities, and particularly in the rare disease. It seems very fractured that the patient communities land in TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, any social media. But when we back up sort of 12 years ago, patients like me, Jamie Haywood, was driving uh, that as a community for many diseases. But that, I don't, I, I was a strong proponent of it, but I've not used 23, um, patients like me. Then there was 23andMe, which came out as well. Again, it looked like that was a home for patients. Why haven't we found sort of best practice for patients to go to the best social media or a best community online to, to gather those patients together? So each of those was built around a disease state. So what you're seeing right now is patients are finding their own disease state. So I think like your industry is changing, the whole social media, social engagement is changing too. Um, it was very organic the way it started patients that were really interested in their disease and would do all the research would start to blog about it, write about it, and people that were Googling it would find them, and pretty soon their numbers of followers would increase to where all of a sudden they did have a voice. And there's now several companies that have aggregated these influencers. And I know one company that has 40 different disease states that has influencers that farm is taking advantage of, but just from a marketing side, they haven't activated the enrollment side or the knowledge side, which is where the next step of this is going to be. Um, so Jeff talked about tech, all these technology changes. These are the kinds of partners out there that provide access and information to the disease states you're studying. And we're still working through the best way to activate them, but they're there. 
Yeah, I would agree they're, they're definitely there. Uh, when, when I worked as a clinician, as mostly a breast cancer oncologist, there were huge numbers of advocacy groups in the breast cancer community. Um, the Susan B. Komen Foundation, the Why Me for Young Breast Cancer Patients Foundation. There were a lot, and they were very interested in getting involved in clinical research, and, and some of those organizations massively fund clinical research. And, and there are others as well. When I was at Novartis, there was no gastrointestinal stromal tumor patient advocacy group at all until there was a drug, imatinib, for the therapy. And that formed a coalition of people with this disease who then learned about each other and the physicians who were experts in that community. And so, so it is definitely organic in the sense that there has to be a, a, a therapeutic opportunity or at least a research opportunity for the community to come together. But I think they're, they're yearning to come together. Next question. Yes. Um, Anne Barbier from Camp 4 Therapeutics. Um, my experience has been indeed that if you talk to patients and patient panels, it can be really paradigm shifting because all of a sudden you realize that what you've been worried about as a physician is often very long-term potential consequences and the patient is very much concerned about other things. So I, I have found it very illuminating. At the same time, the more you do this, the more opinions you get and sometimes you get con contradictory opinions and I've seen this whether it's US versus Europe patient organizations, whether it's patients or parents of patients, and it's sometimes hard to integrate it into something that will not fit everybody, will fit most. Any thoughts on how to integrate apparently contradictory input and suggestions? So I might take this one because one thing that I've learned the hard way is when I have advisory board, I like to have all those opinions um, together. So I like to bring together clinicians, payers, advocates, parents, if it's a pediatric disease and patients, no more than 10, so two of each, depending on the indication, maybe even an ethicist, um, and then kind of duke it out in the room. Because if you have a physician ad board, then a patient ad board, then the payer, and you're trying to bring that back to the office and distill, it's going to be practically impossible. Uh, I think another thing that Anne brings up, though, is when there are multiple patient advocacy groups who don't get along. And from, from my perspective, that's one of the most frustrating things to deal with. And, uh, we, we have examples from muscular dystrophy. We have examples from multiple different uh, therapeutic areas, unfortunately, where there are two main groups and they don't talk to each other. They, they, for personalities or whatever, they fight with each other and they refuse to be in the same room together and they refuse to cooperate. And no matter how much we tell them, look, you, you're going to lose out, they just can't get beyond the barrier. They're, they're Russia and Ukraine. They just cannot get together. And um, we, I, I don't want to make, make light of the situation, but it, it gets to the point where we don't know how to deal with these, with these, with these feuding organizations because they, they just go counter to what we're trying to do. I was raised in a Jewish family, so I'm comfortable with conflicting opinions. Uh, I, I think you can't please everyone. So I fully support what you say, Jody. Put together the group they will realize what their conflicting opinions are, you will strive to achieve the best goal you can. Next question. Yeah, hi, I'm Michelle Gerber from Myloid Therapeutics. A little bit of an echo. Um, 
Yeah, so I think this has been a great discussion. I love to hear about patient advocacy, and um, it would be great to hear more pa about, from more patients at this type of meeting. However, um, my question right now is with social media, which I've heard very little about during the meeting throughout the day. And one of the questions I have about it is, um, do you see any role for companies reaching out to patients through social media, through Facebook, to educate them and bring them in, especially to increase enrollment uh, for a trial? Should I take that one? Sure. The answer is yes. It's inevitable. We're actually involved in one now. We, I, we started, I started a company around patient engagement, sort of uh, bridging uh, what patients want and industry needs. And part of that is this movement to how do you do that? And it starts with demystifying what a trial is. We have basic education to have to bring to these patient groups. They don't really understand trials. The best thing that COVID did is we learned about trials. Now there's a, still a misunderstanding. We have to educate them. If we can do that, there are so many people who are curious, want to be involved, don't know how to be involved. And we can serve that bridge between companies like yours looking for that and these kinds of patients. There's an inevitability there. It's got challenges still, but absolutely there's, there's a huge opportunity there. I would just add um, yes, but do it tastefully. There's no law against it, but I've created online communities. I also express who I am when I'm joining groups, and then I post general posts. I do not reach out to patients directly saying, I read you have this, or yeah, yeah. so yeah, I no, stay I away from that. Yeah, no, I would, yeah. I would stay completely away from that. But there are companies now who have come forward and they'll put out information on Google. If you do a Google search, your clinical trial then may come up um, as part of that search. Um, so I don't know what you th think ethically about that, but um, it's not reaching directly out to a single patient. So I will ask, I will, I will share, I think patients ask four questions that are actually never spoken. There's a lot of clinicians in the room, They're the same four questions your patients ask you when you're practicing, never spoken. First is, can I trust you? You have to build trust. Trust can get lost quickly, gets built slowly. Second is, are you committed to excellence? Are you truly bringing a drug that can help me? Third is, do you actually care about me? Do you know what I'm going through? And the last is, is, is there hope that if we do this, we can get cured, advance science, whatever. And if we keep those four questions in mind and run everything that we do through them, we'll make the right decisions. As, I'm last, as a patient, in some ways, we were like a patient petting zoo. You, you would do a little five or six or eight person focus group and then we, go away. We, we understand patients. It was disingenuous at best and offensive at worst. It's, it's almost like we have this heightened in understanding of diversity. We did the same thing. Yeah, we have a, we have a African American on it. We have a white woman on our, it's disingenuous at best and offensive at worst. The reality is when you include all of the diverse opinions and understanding and experiences, you, your output is so much better. And patients wanna be part of that, that process. So thank you for not letting me get to any of my questions. I think this topic needs an hour next year and we're around at the break if you have further questions. Thanks for thank having you. us. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. 
For more information about the Chief Medical Officer 360 Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cmosummit360.com. Thank you.